Today, every answer matters more than ever before. Because whether it's about health, deliveries, or finance, some things just can't wait. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage millions of calls, texts, and chats with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to help your customers find the answers they need faster, no matter the industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash watsonassistant to learn more. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but also to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. You don't get to be the longest bull market ever. 3,453 days without doing a lot of things right. So on still one more day where the average is to five the odds to hit new records, Dow gaining 64 points, S&P advancing 0.21%, NASDAQ climbing 0.49%, I think it's important to try to learn from this epic run. When you analyze a bull market, you need to understand that it's constantly climbing a wall of worry covered in barbed wire and cut glass. When you run out of worries, you tend to run out of upside. Believe it or not, bears are the fuel that powers a rally because as they get one over, their buying pushes stocks higher. Now, before I give you a history lesson about the last 3,500 days, give or take a few, let me point out that investors got a whole new reason to sell this market this very evening when Michael Cohen, President Trump's former lawyer, pled guilty to violating campaign finance law at the direction of a candidate for federal office. A candidate. Presumably that means President Trump, and I'm sure there'll be a drumbeat that Trump can't survive this. It's going to start tomorrow morning. I am not trafficking in news, fake or real. I am trafficking in things that will worry those who like the certainty of a sitting president who is predisposed to higher stock prices and easy money. Now, look, I can't tell you what will happen with this new set of worries. They just came down, but they are bringing down the stock market with them. And that's something you need to focus on. But I can tell you this particular bull has overcome a whole host of different worries, including something, a lot of them that are like what happened tonight. Although each worry, of course, is a little different. Uh, But I am unlikely to write this market off, despite the reverberations of Cohen's guilty plea. And they are reverberating. So I see many stocks going down. Why don't we do our history lesson now? Maybe it'll help us tomorrow. Our history lesson of what the bears have fallen prey to and what the bulls have triumphed over. Keep this in mind in tomorrow's trading for those who decide I've had enough with the S&P. I'm going to be out of it. I think it'll be wrong. But first, there's the skepticism. From the very beginning of this bull market, when the S&P 500 was at 666, it had to contend with a widespread lack of faith in stocks as a whole asset class. It never ends. Earlier today, I Googled a bunch of stories about the length of this bull market. And, you know, not, not one was even remotely celebratory. Just the opposite. Most explained how the bull was on its last legs. Can you believe this? Of course. According to these professional worry warts, the bull's been on its last legs for seven or eight years now. It's telling you that even after the longest bull run in history, no one takes the optimist seriously. Does, does that mean that uh, we've been right? Anyone who thinks stocks are headed higher is automatically considered suspect, especially on a night like tonight. Okay? Especially. But crucially, this skepticism is the main reason for the bull's longevity. 
I think this run would have ended if investors had ever gotten too euphoric. When everybody's bullish, you quickly run out of new buyers. Fortunately, all I heard today was that people were wondering if this is setting us up for a record decline. That is music to my ears, even though I heard the music on the Michael Cohen news. Let's go a step further. The people who rail against this market tend to be hedge fund managers, including some of the biggest names around. And they've been dead wrong all the way up. Many of them remain dead wrong, but no one ever calls them out. I am sure they will be out in full force tomorrow morning over the Cohen-Trump news. Worry number two. For years, we've heard that valuations are too high, that stocks are just plain too expensive. By any yardstick, at any given time, you could argue that some of the market got too high. But then the, that part corrects. We start over again. Are stocks expensive? Last year, at this time, they sure did seem pricey. Of course, then we got tax reform, and it's created an earnings bonanza that makes stocks look a lot less expensive in retrospect. On top of that, the whole asset class is cheap versus bonds. Sure, at any given time, there are some visibly expensive stocks. Okay, look, let's mention Amazon. Let's puzzle over that for a second. The skeptics have laid bet after bet after bet against these kinds of companies. And time after time, they've been wrong as the company's growth comes in better than, than expected and its stock surges higher. Isn't that the Amazon story? Third, we have had nonstop political turmoil, including this evening. And we had the vicious, often pointless gridlock, the rise of the Tea Party, the government shutdowns, the Freddie in 2016 about how neither Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump would be good for the stock market. And of course, tonight, the uh, guilty plea by someone who was the former president's lawyer. Market overcame all those fears. We don't know about this new one. And until President Trump unveiled his tariff plans, the bulls had free reign. Now, though, even the tariffs and trade issues seem dealable as the S&P just took out its previous high today. Fourth, there's fear of the Fed. For three years now, the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates. We've been told that you should never fight the Fed. You could sell, 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 meaning don't trust the market when the Fed is tightening. But, man, you would have missed out on some epic gains if you followed that advice, in part because rates were already so low to begin with. Fifth, the debt ceiling debacle. When Congress is wrangling over whether or not our government should pay its bills and, uh, and the standard and poor's downgraded U.S. Treasuries, there was a huge freakout. This market got crushed, scared a lot of people out of stocks, even as it ultimately proved to be just one more amazing buying opportunity. Six, we had a mini bear market all over the place, one after another after another, uh, really since the beginning of this rally, since the beginning of the bull. The thing about this bull is that it is a rolling bull market. While the overall bias has been higher, there's always been smaller bear markets that are mauling entire sectors underneath the hood. Take housing. This group has been absolutely hated until today when we got a monster good number from Toll Brothers, high-end home builder. Rather than being discouraged, this home builder used the weakness to buy back vast quantities of its own stock. Toll's strength today ignited the whole group. The housing bear market looks like it may even have ended. But now we've got a new one, the oil bear market. The oil complex is down gigantically. Meanwhile, many of the semiconductor stocks were, until today, getting slammed. When one leadership group gets tired, another group replaces it. Seventh, Europe's been an endless source of woe. Greece almost defaulted repeatedly. By the way, it's now solvent. Portugal, Ireland, Italy, and Spain, they were all supposed to be on their last legs. Now Turkey's the sick man of Europe. Each time I've tried to tell you that these exogenous issues will be solved, and each time I've been ridiculed. Hey, I'm fine with that. It just means you're getting better buying opportunities. Eighth, China. 
The People's Republic caused tremendous pain in the U.S. when its stock market collapsed, leading to a flash crash here in August of 2015. We bounced back from that, yet these days we're in fear of everything China does. Collapse and dominance. Two sides of the strange uh, coin. What do you think? Strange same coin, collapse dominance. I like that. I hear a lot of people argue that Trump's trade war with the Chinese is a loser because President Xi doesn't need to worry about being reelected. Maybe, but maybe not. Their economies are a lot more vulnerable than ours, and it is getting hammered. When Chinese leaders screw up the economy, they get sidelined. It happened to Chairman for Life Mao. It can happen to President for Life Xi. Ninth, we're told that an inverted yield curve where short-term interest rates go above long-term means that we're hurtling toward a recession. I think the 10 years caught up in a massive manipulation game and should be higher. But I'm not concerned about it because we have been living with this threat for ages, and it hasn't proven up to be a problem. Finally, 10th, there's FANG, the narrowness of the rally that is FANG. We've watched Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, now Alphabet, go to astounding levels. These big cap leaders are scorned by most professionals as being overvalued. They've been hit by constant downgrades, not to mention coroner's inquests about the death of FANG. I've also heard that the first day Amazon would, would destroy all of retail. It didn't. Honestly, FANG survives because of reinvention. Facebook bought Instagram, which has been its savior. Hey, down here, by the way, it wouldn't be, I, I wouldn't be a seller, even as the last quarter was horrendous. Amazon developed Amazon advertising, Amazon web services. Apple developed an amazing subscription revenue stream. Netflix went international in a big way. And Alphabet self-driving cars, tremendous advertising growth, as well as routinely improved YouTube and Google search. And look, these are just the biggest walls of worry, the tip of the proverbial iceberg, an iceberg that now includes a guilty verdict for a once close associate to the president involving campaign finance that will give us a bear story that will freak out those who thought President Trump could go untouched from these scandals. Again, the News did send the futures tumbling. I am not going to ignore this. Everything brings out sellers in this market. Good to see that it can't change its initial stripes. Here's the bottom line. You want to know why this bull market has lasted so long? It's because the bull is an underdog the whole way. The whole time, it felt like the bears were right at our heels. And that's what gives us the fuel to keep going higher. When someone like me says something positive, we get dismissed as morons. You know what? If nailing the longest-running bull market in history makes me an idiot, I don't want to be smart. Al in North Carolina. Al. Hey, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. Of course. I, I wanted to talk to you about a company that just received approval for a new uh, drug, uh, EpiPen, on the generic side of the business. And as we both know, when a generic product comes out, there should be some lower pricing for the consumers. What are your thoughts on this uh, new product for Teva? On the pharmaceutical It's side. not enough to move the needle for Teva. I am not a fan. I do not like the commodity drug companies. There's so much good in the J&Js and the Mercs. Why do we have to go there? Let's go to Bob in Colorado. Bob. Hey, Jim. I've been a fan since Mad Money began. Oh, thank you. Many thanks to you. Many thanks to you and your staff for all you do for us home gamers. My thank stock you. has very popular product lines and great licensing deals in place. It ran up after its recent IPO, pulled back a bit, hit an all-time high on a good earnings report, and pulled back again during last week's sell-off. It's up almost 200% in the last six months and is approaching its all-time high again. What are your thoughts on Funko? 
You know what? Uh, this thing is just too red hot for me. And even though it's the top of the show, I'm going to admit that I need to do more work on Funko before I possibly give you an opinion on it. You obviously have followed it very closely. I have not. It's in one of those newer companies. I've got to do work, and I will come back. How about we go to Scott, Minnesota. Scott. Hello, Mr. Kramer. First, Hi, Scott. Thank you, for, thank you for educating all of us in the ways of the market. Oh, thank you. My question my question concerns Monster, which my wife bought many years ago and is still Hanson Natural Beverage. Right. We've, we've taken profit many times over the years, but still have a stake in the company. Is now a time to sell it? No, I like that last quarter. I like that category. I think they're back on their game. This thing is an up or down situation. Right now it's up. I would not sell into the up. It could be a little longer lasting than people realize. All right. Well, we got some new worries tonight with the news of Manafort, uh, guilty, guilty, uh, found guilty, and Michael Cohen, who pled guilty. Uh, the bull has defied the odds and overcome these worries. And that is remarkable. Can it stay remarkable? Well, the history says it can. Oh, man, buddy, tonight, move over maternity leave with, paw- with paternity leave for new pa- parents, generating buzz and showing just how much we care for our fuzzy family members. I'm focusing on one of my favorite long-term themes, animal health. Tonight, I'm eyeing an under-the-radar pet play that could be worth owning. Then, we've been waiting for shares of Cisco to break out and after last week's earnings. It seems like the time may have come. But does its latest rally have staying power? And I'm going off the charts with Starbucks to see if the coffee giant could continue to brew much more than triple vente cappuccino with skin wet. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today. Let's talk about one of the great secular growth themes of our era, and that's the humanization of pets. As people treat their cats and dogs more like members of the family, spending on their food and health care has skyrocketed. And that's created a ton of winners in the stock market, like Kramer fave IDEX. But tonight I've got a new one for you, a company that came public roughly a year ago. It's called PetIQ. That's P-E-T-Q for you home gamers. This is a rapidly growing provider of veterinary products, especially prescription and over-the-counter drugs, but also treats treats that help make your pets healthier in all sorts of ways. When PetIQ came public last July, it really didn't make much of a splash. That's just what I'm really always trying to on the lookout for. Then earlier this year, they acquired VIP Pet Care. It's a chain of veterinary clinics and wellness centers for $100 million in cash and some stock. Since then, the company reported two very strong quarters, including last week's blowout results that sent the stock from $28 to $35 in just two days' time. So can this thing keep climbing? Let's take a closer look with Cord Christensen. He's the chairman and CEO of PetIQ. Get a better sense of how his company's doing 
where it's headed. Mr. Christensen, welcome to Mad Bunny. Good to see you, sir. Have a seat. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Gordon. I'm so glad you're on. Uh, You know this is the first time that you're on, but we have been a huge backer of this amazing theme. Can you tell us where you fit in in the overall idea of humanization of pets? We fit right in the middle of it. Uh, The company was founded on the principle that there's thousands and thousands, millions of pets. That number is increasing. I think we're on our third year in a row that more pets have been brought home than even babies. And uh, we identified a trend that there was an opportunity to dramatically improve health care for pets and that we identified that the health care of pets wasn't being addressed very well through the broader retail market. All right. Well, OK, so uh, we take our, our our dogs to the vet. The vet gives us prescription. Then what happens now with your company? So our company being a little bit different, when we started the business, we made those same products that were available at the veterinarian available through major retailers like Walmart and Costco and, and others like that tractor supply. Uh, which was a big change. Up until we started the company, those veterinarian items were never available in that type of environment. We did it both to give you optionality and and look for opportunities for you to save money, but we also did it because there was a huge market of unserved and underserved pets in those environments, and we knew that if we could educate them, we could grow the overall market, increase the share for everybody, and that's where we could have a foundation to build a really explosive, growing pet health care company. Well, I guess uh, helping the explosion is the, uh, the brilliant VIP pet care deal. Obviously, that was just really energized the company. Tell us where that uh, came in. Yeah, so when we took the company last year, we knew we'd have some opportunities to continue our vision and push it forward. And having public currency put us in a position right. that we could use both capital out of the IPO and our currency from, from the IPO to make that acquisition. What that did for us is we bought the last truly national footprint of operators of clinics, given us a a significant footprint where we could add veterinarian services and a significant number of veterinarians to our company, which we felt was the next big step we could make as a company Mm -hmm. to dramatically improve healthcare through those environments. And so by bringing veterinarians into the market, having best medicine available through major retail outlets and, and bringing that veterinarian closer to where more pets existed that were unserved or underserved, just made a ton of sense for us, and obviously the numbers have spoken for themselves since we made the acquisition. Well, you put your clinics in some pretty visible places. We do. I mean, historically, we've ran our clinics in Tractor Supply and other pet retailers. Uh, This quarter, we recently opened up a significant number of uh, veterinarian clinics under the brand VetIQ inside of Walmart. Nothing can be better than that. Are, Are the numbers good so far? Do you expect that that could be blown out to the thousands of Walmart stores? You know, we're pretty excited about just the customer base that's there. I mean, they're the largest pet retail in the country. People don't think of them. They don't realize it, but they sell more food and and take care of more pets than anybody in the country. And so to to have an opportunity to serve Walmart's customers is a huge opportunity for us to access more underserved and unserved pets out there. We have 20. The company's announced formally that we plan to build 1,000 additional clinics over the next five years. It won't all be Walmart, but we definitely know there'll be more at Walmart. Um, We've expanded. We've added another few at Tractor Supply this last quarter as well. Um, we've got Pet Food Express. We added one. So we're building clinics where it makes sense to access more pets. Yeah, we've used the Tractor Supply one. Really good vets. Nice prices. They're great. Yeah, they really fantastic are. It's a fabulous place too. to bring your pet. I don't think people realize that. They're great. It's really fantastic. Okay, so uh, how about the e-commerce channel? Uh, it's been explosive for us. No. You know, we, we entered the e-commerce channel last because our whole principle was we wanted to be where people were physically going right. to take care of their pets, build enough volume and, and build enough of a base that it made sense to go online. We went online really the first of last year, started with a very low base, and I think we're on our sixth quarter in a row that we've had our highest growth rate for the channel. 
in that space. It's been fantastic. Well, it, look, yours is I, I I'm putting together an ETF. And it's going to have you in it. It's going to have IDEX. It's going to have all our faves. This is quite a great story. Thank you so much, sir. I hope you'll come back from the next quarter. It's really important to us. That's Gord Christensen, CEO of Pet IQ. This one fits, guys. It fits in our wheelhouse. Mad Money's back here for the break. Sometimes a high-quality stock just needs to take a few months to catch its breath before resuming its long march higher. Take Cisco, a longtime Kramer fade that I've been recommending for ages. Under the leadership of CEO Chuck Robbins, Cisco's been transforming itself from a networking hardware play that's a little commoditized and slower growing into a more diversified company with lots of exposure to software, especially for security in the Internet of Things two high-growth areas. By the second half of last year, the transformation was getting obvious and the stock started roaring higher. But then this spring, Cisco seemed to stall out. For months, the stock just couldn't get any traction at all. The results started slipping. The turn always seemed like it was a quarter or two away. Last week, though, Cisco reported a true blowout quarter that put the doubts to rest and sent its stock screaming higher. Bye, bye, bye! In fact, earlier today, the stock hit a new 52-week high, which represents a level we haven't seen since the dot-com bust in 2000, when Cisco was about 400 times earnings. It's not that anymore. We've been waiting for Cisco to finally give us the kind of truly great quarter that would prove Robin's plan is working. And you know what? This was it. Why am I so convinced that the stock is ready to roar? Because Chuck Robbins has been laying the groundwork for years. Remember, in 2015, Cisco brought him in as a new CEO, as the company had been left behind by rivals, frankly. Within a year of taking over, Robbins started signaling a major course change. He wanted Cisco to shift its focus from hardware, low margins, competitive, to software-based networking with a major focus on security. Once you're in, hard to get out. He announced a ton of layoffs, too, and he's been aggressive about using the company's massive cash hoard to acquire other businesses to change the face of Cisco. In 2016, Cisco bought Jasper Technologies, that's an Internet of Things cloud platform, and CloudLock, a security software play. Last year, they snapped up one that I really thought was such a good acquisition. They bought AppDynamics. That's a cloud application monitoring platform. And then they bought Broadsoft. This one I'm a little less certain on, frankly, but it is a leading player in cloud calling and contact center solutions. And the deals continue. In May, they acquired a company, and that's an AI-driven relationship intelligence platform with the CEO, Amy Chang, that I just think is fantastic. And then earlier this month, they announced the acquisition of Duo Security. That's another cybersecurity play that's doing fabulously. And these deals have just changed the face of this company, making the business much more software-focused and fast-growing with higher gross margins. What's not to like? It took a while for them to pay off. But by last summer, it was obvious that Robbins was making, progress, making the real progress here. For the 2017 fiscal year, Cisco got 43% of its sales from software and services. And most most of that was recurring revenue from subscriptions. Even better, deferred revenue, remember how Mark Benioff taught us about how that's a key, key metric. Deferred revenue related to software and subscriptions increased by 50%. Monster growth for a gigantic company. At the same time, Cisco started rolling out hybrid products, networking equipment with proprietary software built in. But you need to pay a subscription to access the new software features. And look, that's why I've been so positive about this story. You know us. In Quamerica, we love subscription-based business models. We love enterprise software. We love cybersecurity. We love the cloud. Cisco is an old dog, an old networking dog, that's decided to learn some new tricks that fit right into our wheelhouse. Coming into 2018, Wall Street got very optimistic. The company just reported a strong quarter in November. The analysts believe management could execute on the big transformation. 
They also love that Cisco had $64 billion of dollars of cash overseas tax reform, which made this company one of the biggest winners from the tax cut because they could now repatriate those profits and pay only a token tax rate. So even if you thought Cisco's metamorphosis might be a little rocky, the company would have more than enough cash to make some major acquisitions while also smoothing out the stock's trajectory with a very generous buyback. Oh, it was a great setup, and the analysts fell all over themselves to recommend the stock. In mid-February, Cisco delivered another terrific quarter. The company gave you real revenue growth for the first time in two years. Management's forecast for the next quarter was robust. And best of all, Cisco rolled out a $25 billion buyback after the passage of the tax cut, which at the time was equal to more than 12% of the total share count. Even for a $200 billion company, a $25 billion repurchase program is enormous. That, this was basically Chuck Robbins telling you that he thought a stock was cheap. Again, the analysts love it, and the stock roared. Take a look. It started going higher, okay? We had some really nice movement here, didn't we? Okay. Now, uh, Cisco's shares begin to stall. Some of it was because the whole technology co-op was getting slammed. Some of it was because the trade war broke out and Cisco gets nearly half of its business from overseas. When the White House banned component sales to ZTE, the big Chinese telecommunications firm, that sent a grim signal to companies like Cisco. Wow. Okay. However, over the course of April and early May, then the stock rebounded. It rebounded dramatically, as a matter of fact, as it ran into the next quarter. After the last few results, people expected another straightforward blowout. That's what Cisco kept delivering. They didn't get it. When Cisco reported in May, I actually thought the numbers were pretty good. I did. I do a lot of work on this company. I've followed it since 1992. But you know what? The market clearly disagreed with me. Even though the company posted a nice top and bottom line beat, with revenue growth accelerating to 4.4%, the guidance was merely in line. Remember how much we care about guidance. Not better than expected. On top of that, when you drilled down, there were some legitimate imperfections. Cisco's recurring revenue made up a smaller percentage of the total than the analysts had hoped for. I was bummed by that. Its services revenue, maybe a little bit soft. Uh, cash flow, I thought was fine. People didn't like. Remember, these are the metrics that people have been looking for to uh, keep track of the progress of the company's turn. So the stock got slammed. And again, I told you it was an overreaction. All right. Which brings us to last week. I like that blue line. Isn't that cool? Yeah, man. Ah. All right. In the previous last week, when Chuck Robbins finally delivered the great quarter that we were waiting for, once again, Cisco gave us top and bottom line beat. Once again, it had accelerating revenue growth, or ARG, up 5.9% year over year. But this time, the guidance, the guidance was fabulous. Just really bullish. Management forecasting 5 to 7% revenue growth. Yes, meaning that at last, you've got uh, a probable ho- hope that acceleration is not over, but it's going to continue. Remember, we don't want to get out of this stop-start pattern, okay? Uh, Cisco spent $6 billion repurchasing its own stock. How much money do these guys have, for heaven's sake? Uh, and it, using those earlier declines to snap up about 3% of its share count. <laughs> that was smart. Again, though, what we really care about are the so-called business transition highlights, the numbers that tell us how the switch to software is playing out. This time, subscriptions made up 56% of Cisco's software revenue. Deferred revenue from recurring software and subscriptions increased by 23% year-over-year. These numbers told us that the transformation is very much on track. Maybe it never was off track. On top of that, Chuck Robbins laid out a very positive story in the conference call. He explained that the growth of the cloud is a huge opportunity for Cisco. Lately, we've been seeing an explosion in multi-cloud strategies where business 
services use, say, Amazon Web Services for one thing, Microsoft's Azure for another. Robbins explained that as our customers move to multi-cloud environment, we see tremendous opportunities to provide value to them by redesigning their IT architecture, delivering security and building, orchestrating, and managing applications, end quote. By the way, Chuck told me on Squawk on the Street, look, we are more than just affiliated with Google. I was worried they were too close to Google. He's got something going with everybody. Meanwhile, Cisco's security business, that is really on fire. It's giving you double-digit revenue growth, and that's the start of the show, especially in an era where all we do is think about hacking. And you know what? Even if this is what's so confounding to me, even after this latest move right here, right? Do you know that this stock sells for just 14 times earnings? I think that's insane. Cisco's paying you to wait with a bountiful 2.9% dividend yield. And, of course, the company's still sitting on another, you know, and you get $19 billion authorization. So if this stock pulls back, you know they'll be in there buying it right next to you. The bottom line, Chuck Robbins, ever since he's become CEO, has done a masterful job of turning Cisco around. And it's good to see that he's finally getting credit for it. He's a no-nonsense guy. He's no hype. He has got total humility. And I think that in some ways you have to have champions like me telling the story. But make no mistake, it is the beginning of the story. I think the stock's got a ton more room to run, and you want to get on it before it takes that journey. Hey, let's take a question. Let's go to Ken in Nevada. Ken. Yeah, hi, Jim. I just wanted to find out. Uh, I was interested in purchasing IBM. And then when I noticed last week, the week before, uh, the guru, uh, Warren Buffett, unloaded his complete portfolio of that. Is that still a buy or um Okay, this is a very complicated story. First of all, I'm glad that you asked me. It is a very complicated story because the problem is is that IBM keeps getting better and better and better, but so does everybody else. So does everybody else, and it's very competitive. I believe the stock's putting in a bottom. I genuinely believe in what's occurring there, but the skeptics abound. I think they're going to be wrong. I think it's inexpensive. Peter in Indiana. Peter! Hey, Jim, I want to give you a booyah from Greenwood, Indiana. Now, that's what exactly what I wanted, frankly. What's going on? Hey, I want to get your opinion on SmartSheet, ticker S-M-A-R. Company uh, IPO'd a few months. It's a cloud-based uh, project management tool. They got a great product. Use it every day. It's sticky. They have great growth, and uh, all my clients love it. I want to get your thoughts. Okay, well, you obviously know more about it than I do. And I'm never going to say, well, wait a second. Let me give you my side because I don't use the program and I don't have any clients that use the program. So here's what I will do. This stock has been red hot. I've got to do work. It's just like what we had with Aptio yesterday. We can do the homework and help augment your thinking. But obviously, you know more than me. So I'm taking a, uh, let's just say I'm going to do some homework. Cisco took a break. But now it is ready to war. I cannot believe it's just sitting here for the, just for the taking. What's for me at Money Head? Ready or not, Starbucks pumpkin spice latte is here. So is Kevin Johnson. I'll, well, he's not in the studio, but he's in the stock. I'll tell you what the seasonal sipper could do for the stock when I tackle the technicals. I think you'll like it. Then is this market showing signs of a true slowdown? Don't make a move before hearing my recession take. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with... Kramer. 
It's that time of year again. Pumpkin spice season is almost upon us, which begs the question, can pumpkin spice save Starbucks? Here's a company that's been troubled of late with slowing same-store sales growth and a big Chinese business that simply is not as good or strong as it once was. But starting roughly a week from today, Starbucks will unleash its ever-popular pumpkin spice lattes. And will that be enough? Or has pumpkin spice become passe? Once September rolls around, you can get pumpkin spice everything. Lattes, frappuccinos, Oreos, Jellos, Twinkies. There's pumpkin spice margarine, pumpkin spice pasta, even pumpkin spice soap. Still, the world goes crazy for this stuff, and since Starbucks was the original pumpkin spice pioneer, it tends to give them a shot in the arm. And that's why tonight we're going, well, among many other reasons, we're going off the charts with the help of Tim Collins. He's a brilliant technician, my colleague at RealMoney.com. Get a sense of where Starbucks might be at. I say Starbucks because the other day he did Walmart, and he nailed it. When the company drastically cut its guidance in June, its stock got poleaxed. It plunged from 57 to $47, I mean, in about a week, after they delivered some pretty subpar results. However, in the past month and a half, Starbucks has been making a comeback, in part because of an aggressive buyback, and in part because coffee's at a 12-year low, and there's also some fantastic execution going on here now. It looks like the loyalty program's growing rapidly. China's third-party delivery issues have been resolved. I like what I'm seeing. So is is it possible that the worst is already over? As I said to David Faber this very morning, he's walking the street. Before we get ahead of ourselves, let's check out the daily chart. When Collins looks at this picture, he really, really likes what he sees. Not only has Starbucks been a very strong for the past week, the stock has also left its June lows in the dust. Look at that. Remember those levels? Collins thinks those levels should make a significant short-term bottom for the stock, especially since buyers have already pushed Starbucks up 14% from its lows. And while this is a big, big move, he's betting the stock has more room to run. I like this bet. Why? First of all, Collins points out that Starbucks has recently rallied above its 50-day moving average. Okay, so like uh, for the first time since May, let's take a look at that. You see that that's the red line. It's now moved above that, the blue line. Okay, that's very positive. Typically, technicians like to buy winners and shun losers. More often than not, it works. And when a stock is above its 50-day moving average, all right, uh, well, then you know, you know it's behaving like a winner. This becomes something that every technician is looking at. So from Collins' perspective, see it close above that key short-term moving average for several days in a row is a pretty darn bullish development. Second, for the past six weeks, Starbucks was trading higher, but it was doing so in a fairly tight channel. All right, those are the, the, the uh, purple lines. It's just that, that this narrow range was tilted in the right direction. As long as the stock stayed in this channel, you could expect slow and steady gains. But late last week, Starbucks broke above the high end of this channel at 53, which has become the stock's new floor of support, down a buck from where it's currently trading. Oh, and just in case the stock starts pulling back, the bottom of the channel gives us another floor of $51.75. That said, Collins is not expecting a breakdown here. He's looking for just the opposite. So am I. Third, Starbucks has given us a classic bullish crossover. Stock's super uh, short-term 20-day moving average, okay, the blue, uh, uh, crossed above its less short-term 50-day moving average. There's, there you go. That's the green circle, okay? Uh, it just, that happened just a few days ago. It's a positive sign. It means the rally's been accelerating. By itself, Collins wouldn't be too excited about this crossover, but in conjunction with everything else, well, it makes him feel a lot more optimistic. A lot of things going on right here, people. It's very positive. Fourth, when Starbucks cut guidance in June, the stock gap down from $57 to uh, 54.83. This is what technicians call an unfilled gap. The stock is currently trading at 54. 
So it's less than a dollar away from this gap. Collins expects the $54.83 level to act as a ceiling of resistance. But once Starbucks breaks out above that level, he expects the stock to quickly fill in the gap, which is what usually happens in these situations. In fact, Collins thinks it'll be smooth sailing from $54.83 to the stock spring highs, which come in just under 60 bucks. Basically, if Starbucks can just rally a few cents from here, he's projecting that stock will easily run up another 9 to 10%. All right, now let's take a look at the, that was the daily, <coughs> excuse me, let's take a look at the weekly. When we zoom out, the recent bounce starts to look a little bit more muted, but Collins still believes it has long-term significance. When Starbucks broke down in June, all right, and we got to keep going back to that June level because it was terrible. So but in June, uh, the stock plunged to levels we hadn't seen since the huge sell-off in 2015. So if we get another pullback here, a serious pullback that takes shares below $50, Collins says the bad things will occur. There's no real support, no real floor under 48 bucks where the stock bottomed earlier this summer. However, as terrible as that sell-off was, Collins notes that it triggered a very interesting pattern, one we have seen a few times over the past three years. You see this gray area, okay, on the chart? This is what's known as a moving average envelope. Specifically, it's the 20-week simple moving average 5% envelope, a mouthful, meaning it shows you the the 20-week moving average plus or minus 5%. Every time Starbucks has fallen outside of this envelope, the stock has bounced. Usually that bounce is quick, and usually it's big. In fact, each time Starbucks has dropped below the 5% envelope, it's then rebounded to touch the high end of the envelope, at least at the very least, usually within a few months. Okay? So if that pattern continues, where would it put Starbucks? Well, the high end of the 5% envelope is currently 57 bucks. As far as Collins is concerned, that's probably the minimum upside for these levels, uh, up more than 5% from where the stock's currently trading. But he thinks it puts his $60 target from the daily chart in play if it does break through the envelope. Remember, the last two times we saw this pattern, Starbucks kept rallying when it got to the top of the envelope. Even better, take a look at the full stochastic oscillator down at the bottom, okay? Now, this is a momentum indicator. Helps measure whether a stock has gotten overbought or oversold. Collins absolutely loves what this tool is saying. What makes this so, so positive? Simple. Even though Starbucks has run up substantially, okay, over the past six weeks, the oscillator is still printing pretty low levels. Last week, it was in oversold territory. Now, it's no longer oversold. But it's still a very long way from being overbought. In other words, the oscillator is saying that the Starbucks has not moved up too fast, too, uh, too far. Historically, this kind of low reading has been very bullish for the stock, especially in combination with the simple moving average envelopes that signal that I just mentioned before. Put it all together and Collins likes Starbucks as long as it stays above 50, unless we get a big breakdown from uh, below that level. He's predicting the stock will sail smoothly at $57 in the near future, with perhaps another run to $60 by the time Thanksgiving rolls around. Hey, I'll take that gain. The one thing now that some are worried about, we checked in with Carly Garner, another terrific technician, who's, remember she just said interest rates are going to go lower, nice, who's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading, the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading, and a resident commodities expert. She says that while the price of coffee's been getting slammed, she'd be a buyer down here because the upside dramatically outweighs the potential downside. Look, will you look at this? Why? Well, Garner points out the shorts have gotten crowded here. There's a lot of people betting against coffee, and that's often a sign that prices are getting ready to bottom. If coffee prices do rebound, it's bad news for Starbucks. But wait a second. Coffee is so cheap right now, and I don't know about you, but it's not like they passed these savings on to the consumer by cutting the price of your uh, latte, the Kramer, the triple vente cappuccino with skim wet. I haven't seen that come down in price to the $4 range lately. Bottom line, though, 
The charts, as interpreted by Tim Collins, suggest that this recent run in Starbucks is just the beginning. Perhaps as pumpkin spice season arrives, the stock will take off. We've been burned by this one before, I admit. But maybe the charts signal that Starbucks is finally getting its act together. And as long as coffee prices stay down, I wouldn't be surprised if it can continue, especially given the terrific stewardship we have now seen from Kevin Johnson, including a nice bump in the company's loyalty program, a lot more people signing up, and a partnership with Alibaba that should reignite Chinese growth, which I think is the key to getting this stock back to its old glory. And I think it's happening. Bad money, it's back after the break. It is time. It's over the light room. Because what's up, Ref Ghost? One of them is here. Tell bye bye bye. So don't really the stock. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? That is up the lightning round. Let's we'll start with Jed in California. Jed. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. My stock is NCLA, Norwegian Cruise Lines. I like Norwegian Cruise Lines. It had a good quarter. The group is looking up. I think it's a good place to be. How about Joe in New Jersey? Joe. 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 Hey, this is Galen from Illinois. Oh, Galen, how are you? I'm sorry. What's going on? Hey, I'm good, Dr. Kramer. Appreciate you taking my call. Hey, I'd like to see if we get this CEO of this company on your show sometime. Um, I paid $6 a share for this back in 2014. It hit a high of $99 in June of this year. At the conference call, it dropped down in the 70s. Price okay. target, one-year price target of 102 MGP ingredients, should I buy, sell, Yeah, hold? that's a refinery. It's a distillery. It's a really good company. We do want to get them one. I'd love them to come on air. Let, now let's go to Joe in New Jersey. Joe. Hello, Kramer. Yeah. Uh, thanks for uh, recommending First Data Corp on me. It's up over 50%. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Uh, my stock is Valley National Bank. Okay, it's a regional closing. bank that I do like. We had the morning. Can't seem to get off the schneid at 12 bucks, but it's very cheap. How about Alex in New Jersey? Alex. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Thank you. I was wondering, uh, I, was a little, I was looking at defensive plays and wanted to get your thoughts on this company, and uh, now it would be a good entry. It's AWK, American Waterworks. Yes, it is a defensive play. It's doing quite well. I like it. It's not that cheap, but it does have the defensive characteristics. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. What does it mean when Johnson & Johnson and Merck and Pfizer see their stocks spurt higher or no real news, no drug approvals, no catalysts, nothing? According to the conventional wisdom, this is the last thing you want to see. Why? Because the assumption is that when the drug stocks were higher, they're predicting a recession, plain and simple. Sell, sell, sell. I don't believe it, but historically it's been a pretty reliable sign. I could say the exact same thing about the utilities. We had American Electric Power, the biggest transmission company in the U.S., on the show last week. Nick Akins, remember? Well, I'd like to say that the stock just jumped 10 points because of excellent cost controls and above average customer payments. All I can really point to is, that is the yield on the 10 years come down, and that drives these bond market equivalent stocks higher. Another sign of recession, though. Don't even get me started on the consumer packaged goods name, so the real estate investment trust, both groups going higher and both pointing to an economic downturn. The hedge fund playbook that I always operate from says that you should be very afraid when all these recession stocks are roaring higher. I'm not saying I'm throwing out the playbook, but I will say this. I've got a different explanation. 
I think all three groups, okay, utilities, REITs, drug stocks, I th- consumer products too, I think they've lost their predictive power. To me, this now looks like just a simple rotation, not a sign of impending doom. Why? First, yes, there's an obvious correlation, as you would know, between the tenure and these dividend stocks. When rates are headed from three down to two and a half, the bond market alternative names are all buys. When rates are headed from two and a half to three, the, they become sells. Uh, since rates seem to be headed lower, well, they're all buys. If, if the rates pass, they're all sells. But second, crucially, far more important, much like the tenure, these stocks no longer really have a correlation with the overall economy. And this is remarkable, people. I think the real linkage that matters is with the flow of funds by money managers within the internals of the market. When we worry about world trade slowing, we do buy staples, including big pharma, not biotech, but big pharma. If the trade war picks up, it's possible that global growth will slow. But you know what? I think the rally of the drug stocks is about institutional money managers simply not having enough exposure to a a terrific group that got too cheap. Pfizer's outlined plans for possible breakup. Merck has Key Truder, which is a huge anti-cancer franchise. Johnson Johnson has some really fabulous potential blockbusters that aren't baked into the stock yet at all. Investors like stocks with potential positive catalysts that haven't really moved. And, you know, the drugs... Well, count them in as stocks that really haven't moved. Now, consider that Allergan, AGM, which was the most despised drug company not that long ago, has gone from 143 in May to 191 with scarcely a single important announcement. Now, they've made some, but nothing that I think was moved the needle. I just think it got too hated. I do think there are positive catalysts on the rise, though. Otherwise, I would never have liked Allergan in the first place. How about the real estate investment trust? Sure, the retail REITs are better because of a cessation of bankruptcies. But the rest of the rally, I think it's ETF money in search of yield. While real estate, including the malls, have done a surprisingly good job of holding up in value. So you can rant and rave that the strength in these stocks means a recession is imminent, as so many people tell me. But to me, employment, retail sales, consumer confidence are all so high that the idea of a recession seems absurd. In short, the rally in the recession stocks doesn't mean what you think. It does not mean recession. Still, I always want to be cautious about the moves. The action in these identical stocks is back in 2000. Influences my thinking. They rallied and recession indeed was around the corner. But this time... It's different, people. I know. Dangerous sentence. Oh, please. There's no recession. There's simply a rotation. A rotation from one group that got expensive to another group that, got, that fell behind and got cheap. Let me put it this way. For more than five years now, the worst mistake you could possibly make was trying to overthink this market. Don't try to be too clever. When all the economic data says things are great, maybe things are. And you should take it at face value. I know it sounds crazy, but hey, it sure has worked so far. Stick with Craig. Never celebrate anything, including the longest bull market in history, because tonight we got some guilty news. That's right. We got associates of the president, both guilty. And we think that, well, look. They're going to cause a big decline in tomorrow's session, at least in the open. That's been the pattern. And what should be different this time? I say nothing. Just be ready. Like I said, there's always a market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. 
apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.